Hello everyone, my name is Edward, and I am the host of the Ramaska Film Podcast. Thank you for joining us. So, today we're going to start our coverage of the Netflix and Shonda Rhimes show, Bridgerton, which has been very popular, and I'm sure there are lots of other podcasts out there, but I have recently been exposed to it. My partner, uh, wanted to get me into watching it, and I do enjoy lots of other Jane Austen adaptations and novels and period dramas and pieces and especially Regency era and um, American Revolution, British 17th century, 18th century dramas and comedies for that matter. So I wanted to start off our coverage today by just giving a little bit of background on the show and then diving into season one, episode one. Unfortunately, you will only be hearing from me today, but I expect in the coming weeks I will have guests on to discuss the episodes in the rest of season one. So I am looking at the Bridgerton wiki, powered by the um, fandom wiki, and the creator of the show is Chris Van Dussen, based on the Bridgerton novels by Julia Quinn. The series writing credits go to Chris Van Dussen, Janet Lynn, Leah Cohen Michio, Abby McDonald, Joyce C. Mitchell, and Sarah Dollard. The show's stars Adoya Ando, Lorraine Ashburn, Jonathan Bailey, Ruby Barker, Sabrina Bartlett, and Harriet Keynes. The executive producers are listed as Shonda Rhimes, Betsy Beers, and Chris Van Dussen. And the principal uh, producer behind it is the Shondaland Production Company, which is the Shonda Rhimes Production Company, when she signed her exclusive deal with Netflix. So, Bridgerton is a Netflix period drama created and executive produced by Chris Van Dussen and executive produced by Shonda Rhimes and Betsy Beers. The series premiered all episodes of season one dropped on December 25th, 2020. Based on Julia Quinn's best-selling series of novels, Bridgerton is set in the sexy, lavish, and competitive world of Regency London High Society. From the glittering ballrooms of Mayfair to the aristocratic palaces of Park Lane and beyond, the series unveils a seductive, sumptuous world replete with intricate rules and dramatic power struggles where no one is truly ever on the steady ground. At the heart of the show is the powerful powerful Bridgerton family, comprised of eight close-knit siblings. This funny, witty, daring, and clever group must navigate the upper 10,000s marriage mart in search of romance, adventure, and love. So, clearly this show has been very popular so far, and it has stirred up a lot of excitement and enthusiasm, not just because the market for period dramas and especially these types of Jane Austen Regency dramas. Um, I wouldn't say it's saturated, but clearly there are lots of options, lots of novels and films and adaptations out there. You have things like Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters and Pride and Prejudice and Zombies because this is one of the most popular eras of recent history to escape to, I think, in escapist literature and um, television, film, um, this sort of fantasy right before the Industrial Revolution. And I think that's a big part of the charm, is that it's sort of the peak of high society right before the Industrial Revolution, where there were still class and power structures and almost a caste system, but 
you could tell that things were loosening and things were changing. And I know there's been much discussion. Um, for full disclosure, I am a cis white male, so I unfortunately will not have as great of a perspective on the power dynamics and racial dynamics behind the um, outstanding casting in the show. But I do think all the actors, which I'll we'll get into a little bit later, are very well cast so far, just as of season um, season one, episode one. But hopefully I'll be able to have some guests on who can talk more to the intricacies and excitement behind the casting and this sort of alternative history. I don't necessarily like the terms historical fiction or alternative history because I feel like it diminishes what's going on in this show um, because I think the way that everything is presented is very plausible and very real. And I do think that this is a great example of no longer being confined to what the perhaps ethnic makeup of a certain period were um, when you're casting. This is almost casting for the parts based on who's, who's best for the role and maybe thinking about the characters and having in your mind what ethnicity or background you want the character to have and have that really inform their history and their character deep down. So let's play a clip from episode... For all we know, we're sometimes maybe some interloper living in Bloomsbury. What should be so terrible about Bloomsbury? The people there actually work for a living. Well, she does seem to be someone with access. Who knows if Whistledown is even a she? Fair point. Because she's simply too good to be anyone's man. Well, I think it's rather obvious that the writer's Lady Danbury. Lady Danbury enjoys sharing her insults with society directly. She would never bother herself writing them all down. Could it be Lady Featherington? No! <laughs> So, the first episode of season one of Bridgerton, as we said before, all episodes of season one dropped on December 25th, Christmas Day, 2020. Um, uh, Nice surprise capping off the end of what I think we can all agree is a pretty uh, terrible year. So, the short synopsis, as per the Bridgerton Wiki, is Daphne debuts on London's marriage market as a new gossip sheet sets high society at Twitter and Simon, the eligible Duke of Hastings, returns to town. So, um, first impressions and things that I noticed. The episode was very, very colorful, and it set, I think, a very good tone for the rest of the season. It seems like a typically well-done period piece, but I do think the upbeat and energetic tone, coupled with the colorful cinematography and the palettes of even just London, the neighborhood where all the houses are, the brickwork, the color, everyone's costumes, you can tell that Netflix really, really wants to make this a flagship show for the coming years, and they put a lot of money into the costumes, which obviously is, is always the case in period dramas. But I think lately, um, 
I'm thinking of the, I think it was Sorshi Ronan and Margot Robbie did a period drama that, that was in theaters and there was um, Chris Pine did another one. I think both of them had to do with Scotland. The Chris Pine one debuted on Netflix and they sort of have that Christopher Nolan realistic dark color palette, gritty color corrected vibe to it, which um, there's a time and a place for that probably for dramas, but I think there's something to be said for keeping this series a drama with comedic elements, but having it really pop and be lively, and I think it really helps grab the viewer and draw them in. Um, it's it's hard to judge this episode in a vacuum because it is the pilot episode, um, even though that term maybe doesn't have as much meaning anymore these days, but it sets up the characters and the plot well enough I know people have talked about and discussed the musical choices and the scores and that the series uses modern pop music, almost similar to the um, uh, Great Gatsby film, I think, with Leonardo DiCaprio in it. But the music so far in this episode was all delivered with a traditional um, string quartet or um, classical instruments of the time period. So it's an interesting twist. It's another sort of um, unique take on the time period in addition to the, I wouldn't call it colorblind casting because I think the casting was done very specifically and deliberately, but it helps establish the series and this world in its own particular place in time and in its own universe, which is really, really nice. And it really sets itself standing apart from everything else. Um, I'll say at the outset that I typically don't like having narrators in films or television shows. I think there are very few instances where they work. Um, Despite how the show ended, How I Met Your Mother is one that stands out because the framing device of the show is him telling his children the story of how he met their mother. For movies, I usually don't like it too much. I think it works okay in the Deadpool films because you have a situation where the film almost opens in medias res and Deadpool is sort of catching the audience and the viewer up to the point where he is in the story. So you don't necessarily know that the character survives the end of the film, but it builds up suspense because the viewer is getting caught up to where the character is. And then once you get to that point, then the audience has it, – it's a, it's a different way to give the audience a relationship to the character and then take them on that journey. Here in this episode, in this show, they're sort of using this gossip sheet as a framing device for giving the audience some background on the characters and the plot and the society. And then there's obviously the sort of mystery box conceit of at least season one that no one knows who is writing these gossip sheets, but whoever it is seems to have access to the inner workings of multiple different houses. And um, it's sort of driving high society. Um, I guess... A point that I've actually brought up before when thinking about these kinds of shows is I think the reason um, Shakespearean and Jane Austen adaptations translate so well to um, a high school setting, uh, something like 10 Things I Hate About You, is that it feels almost like high school, um, to a lesser extent college, but really, really high school, that period of someone's life, especially if you are privileged and can just focus on your studies and partying and hanging out with friends and extracurriculars, really mirrors this sort of British high society where 
no one was wanting for their basic needs and you really only had to worry about adhering to the social customs, uh, marrying off into a good family, presenting yourself, your chastity, similar to in high school, you have proms and maintaining your popularity and fitting in with what cliques or what families you belong with. So I think that's why these really, really work. And obviously all of the characters in this show are vastly wealthy and... We, that leads us, as with any of these kind of period pieces, to focus just on the social and societal and interpersonal relationships that all the characters have. Um, I think it definitely had a lot of tropes that it set up with some of the characters. The Duke of Hastings seems to be the typical uh, brooding bad boy character who is almost in a fish-out-of-water scenario. He doesn't like being back in London, but he's come back to settle some affairs and to go to this ball or two, and then he obviously meets the only girl that gives him pushback, the main character of the show, and she and him immediately form a bond, and it sort of sets up a conceit for the rest of the season, where he and she meet at the end, and they decide, well, you're really the only other person that I respect enough around here, how about we have a fake relationship, which will no doubt eventually turn into a real relationship as they fall for each other, so that we can just get a little bit of space and get our families off of our backs. Um... There's always that one goofy suitor or family member in Pride and Prejudice. It is the pastor who comes to dinner. Um, there's always one goofy guy that doesn't quite fit in. So that's that's always interesting to see. I'm not sure how I feel about it, but um, it, it's, it's a little cringeworthy. There's some cringe humor every now and then. Um, I also actually found that I dislike these Regency dresses with the very, very high waistline. I just don't think it looks flattering on anyone. And I can't believe it was a style of the time period. Um, that's one of the things I like about the Jane Austen, um, the Pride and Prejudice adaptation with Kira Knightley, that they chose to set it maybe 20 to 30 years earlier. So the fashion, I think, is more, um, I don't know, I like it better. Um, the clip that we played was from the dinner scene, um, which I think was really, very really well done with having the family sort of scripted out and they're bickering and back and forth and you can tell that the duke is not used to that type of a family dynamic and that type of a dinner environment and he's rather enjoying it and that plays into his decision later in the episode where he says well uh, this is the only woman that talks back to me um, I respect her for that I could be fake in a relationship with her and she doesn't have the worst family in the world because they're at least fun I'm you know old college buddies with her brother so there are worse things to go on no matter how awkward it might be um, those are just some of my thoughts so far uh, there's not that much else to talk about because I've only seen the first episode um, but in the coming weeks there will be more coverage of the rest of the episodes of the season and picking it apart. Obviously, most of you have probably already seen the entire series, but I appreciate you sticking with and listening, and I will have plenty of guests upcoming. Hopefully, I'll have some more episodes drop covering some other series and shows in the meantime, um, just all dumping the content on here while I have the time. So thank you very much, and talk to you later.